Hello and welcome to Relative Digressions. I'm Flick. And I am Renna. And this month we have been recalled to the ancient and gothic world of Gallifrey, where in the shadows there lurks a deadly assassin. Yes, this week we are looking at The Deadly Assassin, the uh, third serial of season 14, uh, one of Tom Baker. I, I can't remember how long it is in Tom Baker's tenure. Um, it's the dividing line between the Sarah Jane Smith and Leela period. Yeah, so there's no companion, though, in this episode. For, for the first time in the show, this is the first time we've had a story where the Doctor is present, but he is alone. He is the only protagonist. And there haven't been that many of them, right? After this one. Um, David Tennant's specials year would be the period that really still does it. Sure. And obviously, the incomparable Heaven Sent. Right. And it's conspicuous that both that sort of year of specials and Heaven Sent have an undertone of the Doctor being alone, building up to Gallifrey-related character arc stuff. Because with Doctor on his own, there's more space to explore their relationship with Gallifrey. Which is what this episode does. It does more than that, because this episode actually defined for the first time a lot of things which now feel like essential parts of the Time Lord mythos. I think right down to the to the silly hats. The most iconic form of the Time Lord collar, yeah. The 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 sort of skull cappy bit, no. The big collar, yeah. It's a strong look, to be honest. They do actually say that the big collars are rarely worn. So this idea that that's what they just wear to, like, go with a, a cup of tea it is not actually true. Right, but I feel like it's been... We will talk about this. There is a lot of stuff introduced here. But not only is there a lot of stuff introduced here, there has been a lot of conceptual drift. Like We talked about Battlefield and the show having a mythology of its own. And this is an example of it really being mythology because it has drifted like mythology. For, fun fact about those Time Lord Collars, by the way. Go on. When we first see one in the new show, which is in The Sound of Drums, when the Doctor has a flashback to his childhood on Gallifrey, the establishing shot is a Time Lord standing on the rocks outside the capital. And the silly collar he is wearing there is one of the actual original ones from The Little Assassin. Oh, that's very fun. Um, so what happens in this story? All right, so at the end of the last story, The Hand of Fear, there is a, a very abrupt and quite sort of cold and callous and quite shocking ending where the story's over, happy ending, Sarah excited to go on her next adventure and the Doctor says, you've got to leave. She has to gather all of her stuff into a box and he pushes her out the door because he's being recalled to Gallifrey because the president of the Time Lords is stepping down. Which is a, a normal thing, right? A no- normal but rare thing. And the Doctor, on his way to attend, has this vision of the future, of something terrible happening. Prefiguring Star Wars, we start with an opening crawl that scrolls up the screen which Tom Bacon narrates, that tells us about the ancient lore of Gallifrey, and specifically, again, in in terms of myth. And then we go immediately from that into a fisheye point-of-view camera shot of scenes to come later in the episode. We see what's going to happen later. We see that 
the assassination of the Time Lord president, but it's not clear what's going on. It's just very distressing and disconnected and alien. And then we find out that this is the vision. And it's interesting that we kind of get an opening to the story from the Doctor's point of view in a way that we've never really seen inside his head before. Right. That is interesting. But he's not he's on his own now. You know, it's not it's not as true as people sometimes assert, but generally speaking, we are kind of aligned with the companion. And now the companion's gone, it's like we've nowhere to go but into the doctor's view of things. So that's interesting. Uh yes. Anyway, the doctor arrives on Gallifrey and Castellan Spandrel, who is the head of Time War Security send some people to arrest him uh, because he's an intruder and he's in an unlicensed TARDIS. The Doctor eludes capture long enough to get to the inauguration ceremony and he finds the rifle that he assumes the assassin is going to use, but it's a setup. He picks up the rifle and at that moment, somebody in the crowd kills the outgoing president framing the Doctor, who is now standing up on a balcony, holding a sniper rifle, with the President just been shot. If this sounds like the Manchurian candidate to you, that's because it is. So the Doctor is arrested. However, Spandrel has been talking to Engin, who is the Keeper of Time World Records, to find out who he's dealing with. I really like Spandrel. I like that he's a grumpy cop. In a society full of, like... Spandrel's fantastic. Spandrel and Engin are fantastic. Like, they are a classic Robert Holmes double act. He loves his double acts. Yeah. So, Spandrel and Engin have noticed various discrepancies in the Time Lord records. And Spandrel's starting to think something is up. And he speaks to the Doctor. And he sympathises with the Doctor. He comes around to the idea that the Doctor is being framed... But before he can do anything about it, Chancellors Goth and Barusa call for a trial ASAP before the inauguration of the new president, which everybody thinks is going to be Goth, because having the trial hanging over the presidency would diminish the authority of the Time Lords. Right, because that that obviously makes it much more legitimate. (laughs) Yeah, right. And then the Doctor invokes Article 17 using uh, an obscure loophole in the Time Lord Law to declare himself a candidate for the presidency, which means that they're not allowed to execute him. I mean, it's just quite goofy, isn't it? Why, why is that? I mean, I guess the logic is that, like... It's quite believable that, like, the Byzantine way the law of the Time Lords has been written, this odd discrepancy has seeped in that nobody has spotted that, like, a criminal can delay their execution by running for the presidency. Right. And the Doctor has figured this out. The Doctor has racked his brains and realised that this is his gambit. Yes. Goth complains that, you know, this is a technicality and it's not how the law is meant to work. But Barusa, who is another cardinal, says... And Barusa actually wants the Doctor executed as quickly as possible as well because he agrees with Goth. But he says that actually, no, they definitely can't execute him if he's protected by Article 17. So he is discharged into the care of Spandrel and now they can conduct their investigation. The investigation basically involves... One scene where they go to speak to Engin, the records keeper, 
and the Doctor learns about how the Matrix works. The Matrix is a computer that is a repository of the minds of dead Time Lords. And by networking the minds of dead Time Lords, they can predict the future. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but like it, you know, like fine, okay, sure. I think it makes. I, I think it makes. Are, are they good predicting sense. the future? Like, are they? Are they like saying? Are they, are they doing prophecy, or are they like calculating what will happen if you see what I mean? They're calculating it. It's you know, like the the right. sum of time world knowledge. That makes more sense. Yeah, I get. Bearing it. in mind they are time lords. Really, they they don't shout very loudly about that. And, and the moment the Doctor learns that the Matrix has this ability, he realizes that. That is that must be what he received the premonition in the TARDIS at the start of the story. Aha, uh-huh, yeah. He says, okay, somebody set me up by sending me this image. But how is that possible? The only person who can operate the Matrix is Engin, and he didn't do it. Unless... Unless somebody else sent it from inside the Matrix. The call is, in fact, coming from inside the house. Engin says this is impossible. It's only, it only stars the minds of the deceased. But the Doctor does some hypothesizing, and he reckons that the technology should be equally capable of storing a, a mind of a living Time Lord. And he thinks that the true villain has been manipulating things from within the Matrix. And so he has to go into the Matrix himself to catch them. Then the story does a acrobatic somersault... <laughs> Right off the handle. <laughs> yeah, so it was at this point I messaged Flick and I was like, I love this story. It's really good. It's really intricate, interesting plot. I can't wait to see what's happened next. And then... So so we're nearing the end of episode two and we've been doing this gothic political thriller, this, this sort of goth punk high technology built into ancient crumbling abbeys. It's a bit Warhammer 30,000. And then suddenly... We're in a quarry, and there's a crocodile, and then the crocodile disappears, but now there's a samurai, and then uh, the, the the samurai tries to knock the doctor down a cliff, and the doctor falls, but now he's not in a quarry anymore, he's on a railway, and now an evil train guard is coming to run him over in a train because his foot is stuck in the points. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's the cliffhanger and and you're like hang, hang on sorry what where, where did we, what what just happened <laughs> the, why, why was there a samurai where did the crocodile come from why is the doctor being menaced by an evil model railway operator so I just want to point out I, I, at this point Nothing wrong with a weird dream sequence. No, the sin, in my regard, is that literally most of the next episode, almost all... Yeah, all. Let's be clear. This is as a weird, surreal, like, cliffhanger to episode two would be fine. It then continues through the entire next episode, which basically has no dialogue, and into the start of episode There's a little bit of stuff outside of the Matrix where the Doctor is sort of lying down, and there's a bit of a conflict there, but that is really there just to bloke it up. Part three of The Deadly Assassin probably has the shortest script of any Doctor Who story. Is it just like, it happens on location, you guys figure it out? Or possibly it has a really long script, because it's just like really complicated uh, stage directions. 
It's actually quite interesting in that regard. Like, I'll give it it. That is quite an interesting way to tell It's true. It's almost like a silent movie episode. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I could simply move on to episode four at this point. Nothing important is going to happen. You know, like when someone else describes a bad dream to you, and it is, it is, oh, it's really hard to make that interesting because there's something, there's yeah. a vividity in dreams. It's like this, and it was like this watching yeah. it as well. It's exactly like that's exactly what this is. <laughs> the, the, the doctor is literally having like a bad nightmare, and the story is telling about it at length. And you're like, I don't. I am the creator here, Doctor. This is my world. There is no escape for you. So there is this protracted chase sequence between a masked hunter and the Doctor in which the Doctor is dying of thirst, so the hunter poisons the water, but the Doctor detects that it's poisoned and he uses the poison to make a blow dart with a thorn and then the hunter shoots at him with a rifle and the Doctor steals a hand grenade from the hunter's pack and tries to blow him up with a hand grenade and... It climaxes with a big fight in a marsh where the hunter is revealed to be none other than Chancellor Goth. Dun, dun, dun. Played by Bernard Horsfall, who is superb. Uh, you will remember me singing his praises on The Mind Robber. Indeed, because in there he played Gulliver, am I correct? He played Gulliver, yeah. And he was also one of the Time Lords at the Doctor's trial in the War Games, which you can imagine might indeed have been Goth. Goth says that the only thing he wants is to kill the Doctor for his master. I wonder who his master might be. Has it not been established by now that it might be? The it master? has actually pretty much been given away by the credits of episode one, but there you go. So they have this big fight, and uh, the climax of episode three is a freeze frame on the Doctor's head being held underwater as Goth tries to drown him in the marsh. If this sounds A incredibly violent, and B, incredibly pointless, you would be correct. I, I think it's almost... It feels like... I used to get... Uh, they used to sell, like, collected classic comics stuff, like in the comic store, right? So, you know, you'd have, like, old Beano comics, but also, like, a bunch of old... Basically, old comics reprinted in black and white, because, they, you know, they could do it for cheap. Mm -hmm. Quite a lot in there, you'd have boys' own style comics, or, like, adventure comics. And they had a very similar energy, you know? Yeah, sort of yeah. Violent, but not like violent in a way that means people actually get injured. Yeah, that, that is the comparison that a lot of people draw. That said, we do see injuries, and more to the point, just sort of grit. It's much more brutal than Doctor Who ever normally looks. And, crucially, this actually provoked complaints at the time from Mary Whitehouse. Yeah, I mean, Mary Whitehouse complained about every episode of Doctor Who ever. Yeah, but she had a point. But, but for once, she had a point. Uh, in particular, the big issue was the the cliffhanger with the held close-up freeze frame of the Doctor drowning underwater. And the fact that it wasn't then resolved for the week. It was left on this shot of the Doctor drowning, and that was where it ended, was considered a big problem. Which uh, I actually have to say I kind of agree with. If this had been The Prisoner or something, that would be fine, but it's not. It's Doctor Who. And it's like, apparently, when you go into The Matrix, that's where you end up. You end up in an ITC thriller series. Right, exactly. Um... So, after all that nonsense, the plot begins again. Goth can't kill the Doctor because he has too much Artron energy, which is like Time Lord Life Force. And in his secret lair, 
Goth's master, the master, who is a staring skeleton with bits of flesh clinging in a decaying, tattered, ragged robe. He now loses his patience. He tries to burn out the Doctor's mind through the Matrix, which also burns out Goth's mind. And the Doctor fortunately escapes, and they beard the dragon in its lair. They figure out that the Master must be dwelling in the, the basements directly beneath the record chambers in order to access the Matrix. And when they get there, what they find is a dead Master, which they don't really question because he looks like a corpse. They also find a very nearly dead Goth, who explains that having learned he wouldn't be president, he allied himself with the Master, came under the Master's mental dominion. Now he's finally free to express his regrets, and then he conks it. Well, the Time Lords die in this story, which is interesting in a story that's all about how the fact that most of the time they don't, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Like, Runcible, dearly departed Runcible, uh, the Time Lord who gets stabbed earlier, who we'll talk more about in a bit, he doesn't die. Oh, he does like, He does die, he doesn't regenerate. So, that's kind of odd. Cause he, he dies by being stabbed, which is hardly like you'd, you'd think, you know, he'd have another one in him. But... So this seems like the end of the story. Indeed. Dead goth, dead master, job done, except... Why did the Master care? Why did the Master want Goth to be the president? And now we're back to that mythological sense that this is myth, both sort of in and out of universe. The, the myth says that the presidential attire grants the ability to access the Eye of Harmony, the source of time Lord power bound at the heart of the planet by Rassilon that everybody thinks doesn't exist. But the Doctor puts two and two together, and he realises that the Eye of Harmony is very real. It's a black hole that is harnessed at the centre of Gallifrey and the source of their power. And amongst other things, the source of their regenerations, of which Time Wards normally only have 12. I, I, I don't know why you said it like that. Everyone knows that. Right. Every, everybody knows that. It's just an established fact of continuity, except that here is where it's being established. The Master had used all of his up, Hence him looking like a big dead zombie monster. And the Doctor now puts two and two together. The Master needed someone to acquire the presidential attire so that he could access the Eye of Harmony and give himself more regenerations. Right. Meanwhile, the Master wakes up in the mortuary, having only faked his death in a Romeo and Juliet-style fashion. And now he's in the Panopticon with the sash and the key. I like that Romeo and Juliet is the one you read you're like, <laughs> you know, this story in many ways reminds me of prototypical tragic romance. Like, a plot device in Romeo and Juliet is that there is a poison that looks that exactly I, like... I know the plot Like, the poison that makes you seem exactly like you're dead, but you're not. Why does this exist? <laughs> I hope no irresponsible monks ever get their hands on this. <laughs> so the master um, uses the sash and the key and is unhooking the control system for the Eye of Harmony, releasing its power, giving him new life, and Gallifrey starts falling apart. Uh, it's all very dramatic. The set is a little wonky. Yeah, it's a shame the set's not better. In the modern times, it would be it would be CGI, and it would look really good. In the modern times, it would look great. Even at the time, I think what they could have done, honestly, is just, like, dirty things up, blow a load of smoke around, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, it needs a bit of... You need to obscure your bad props, if you see what I mean. Yeah, flash the lights and dim the lights and things like that. So the Doctor tells the Master that it will kill him too, and the Master says, no, it won't, I've got the sash. 
The doctor says that during the assassination, the sash was damaged and that the master will be killed too, which buys him enough time to get close enough to wrestle with the master. The floor of the Panopticon cracks open and the doctor throws the master into the crack and he Mm -hmm. falls into the center of Gallifrey. Then the doctor replaces the control systems for the Eye of Harmony and everyone is saved, apart from the fact that half of the capital fell apart and almost everyone's dead. But, you know, happy ending. The day is saved. But you missed the final final mysterious bit, which is, in fact, the Doctor leaves, and then we realise that the Master has survived, and we see a grandfather clock there, which I had noticed, and I was like, hmm, I wonder. And it turns out to be the Master's TARDIS. It disappears. So there's this real sense of, this is not the last time, which is pretty cool. And I don't know when the Master next appears, Tom Baker, but it can't be too long. The Master will not now appear again until the regeneration of Tom Baker. Oh. Until the Keeper of Tracken. Hang on, that can't be right, because that's not the actual regeneration story, though, is it? The Keeper of Tracken, Logopolis, and Castrovalva are all actually one story that's like 12 episodes long. I didn't know that. Okay, cool. That's the... They meet Nyssa... Anthony Ainley gets his body snatched, destroys Nissa's planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nissa has a really interesting backstory. They do nothing with it. But but yes, he, the important thing is that the Master has, in fact, gained enough life energy to go on living and has escaped. What he lacks for, however, is a body. And next time he appears, he'll deal with that. The Master was going to be at the ceremony, but he had no body to go with. Oh, for... <laughs> I mean, that's not true. He was there with Goth. Yeah, that's why it doesn't work. I like the fact that Robert Holmes was like, now then, we've got this planet of gothic time lords. What shall I call the important gothic villain of this gothic race? I'll call him John. <laughs> Goth. So, right. almost all of the plot is in the last episode. No, that's not quite true. And uh, the first episode. Uh, the second episode is quite a bit. I think fundamentally the third episode has like no plot is the issue. So I, I think you could easily... I think you said you could make this into a, a one-parter. Yeah. I, I don't quite agree. I think it would work well as a two-parter. You might need to add, oddly add some extra material that's a bit better. Yeah, like, I mean, you could make it into a two-parter by expanding it. But as it stands, all of the stuff in part two, you could do as much more natural exposition woven through the story so that what you then essentially do is collapse episode one and four together into a modern one-parter. Yeah, it's very doable. I feel like you could actually do like a fan edit of this. Yes, I'm sort of surprised nobody already has. Well, the reason that they haven't, I think, is because most people, in fact almost everyone, regards this as a classic. And I guess what I'm touching on here is the fact that I don't think it is. Yeah, uh, I really liked the first half. I really liked the last bit. I got bored of the nonsense in episode three. I realised that I tuned out in the middle of episode yeah. three. I realised that I wasn't even thinking about what was on the screen. I was just thinking about something else. And I was like, no, hang on, I need to watch this. I'm supposed to be doing a podcast about it. And I just, my mind had wandered. There's very little to critically engage with is, is, is sort of the issue. It, it's just images. Like there's a crocodile and it, it's just there. And then it's gone again, and it's got nothing to do with anything. And then there's a samurai, and it's just there, and it's gone again, and it's got nothing to do with anything. And then there's a train track, and it's there, and it's gone again, and it's got nothing to do with anything. And it's yeah. The only bit I like is the part where two giant eyes open in the face of the quarry, and the quarry sinisterly whispers. Yeah, it almost needs more surrealism like that, I think, to really work. Yeah, it either needed to go fully off the wall, bizarre, with fun fairs and ancient. Victorian undertakers and people being eaten by beaches and oh wait hang on 
Are you referencing a thing? Or... Yeah. We'll be going back into the Matrix in the trial of a Time Lord. <laughs> Exciting stuff. Um, I I found myself wanting... I feel like it's a scene I've seen in multiple things, but that thing when someone is in some sort of dreamscape and they think they've got away from someone, but then it zooms out and they're actually in the palm of their hand. <laughs> yeah. Like, you want that, but actually you, you don't get... And you want to get the sense of a mental battle and it just doesn't work. Oddly, if they had a companion, it would work a bit better. You could do something a little bit like the Silence of the Library, Forest of the Dead episode. Yeah, because if you have a companion... You, w- you wouldn't have them both in the Matrix. You'd have the Doctor in the Matrix and the Companion back on Gallifrey and you'd intercut between the two, which they do with Engin and Spandrel, but Engin and Spandrel are just standing over the Doctor going, oh, he's getting a bit damaged. I really I don't want to dwell on episode three too much. No, indeed. It's massively experimental. It's so unlike anything else. It's completely tonally different. It is remarkable. But also, from a, a textual point of view, it's got the least going on. Yes. So one thing that is sort of interesting is that, you know, we've mentioned that it resembles kind of a boy's own adventure. And I think that is interesting when you consider it's the dreams of all these Time Lords who broadly are depicted as sort of like public school, posh. Like, if you've got to get a bunch of public school lads having a big collective dream, like maybe it would look like a boy's own adventure, you know? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. But I like I would go kind of the other way. It, it's sort of it's almost too lively and worldly and active for these incredibly reserved people. And our kin space on the forums, who are always contributes interesting things to the discussion, makes a really interesting point here, which is that we're seeing the Matrix under the control of Goth. Goth is the one controlling what it looks like, and possibly what that suggests is that. Goth is a more well-travelled and worldly figure than a lot of Time Lords. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, of course. So they said, um, the fact that he seems well able to acquit himself in this environment gives his character greater depth. He's not so much one of the stuffed shirts who seem to prevail upon Gallifrey, but he's evidently something of a man of the universe. What all this adds up to is that Goth may very well have made a decent enough president had he not run into and been subjected to the Master's influence. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right? He is... I, I, you know, I think I sort of had that thought while watching the episode, but didn't quite complete it. But yeah, Goth is, is himself a bit different. He's not like the other Time Lords. Yeah, the one thing that episode three does do well, but quite subtly, it shows that Goth is a bit like the Doctor. He can improvise an adventure and get out and about in a way that the rest of the Time Lords clearly do not do. Right, indeed. Something else that Ark in Space said that I really liked was about the visual used for entering the Matrix, which is actually quite funny because it's not what they originally planned, but their original plans fell through and they had to improvise something. And what they do is that they use the time tunnel, as it's called, the Tom Baker opening background image. Uh-huh. And Ark in Space says, so how do we enter the Matrix? Via the program's very own opening titles, of course. But wait, those opening titles are reversed, suggesting what? That Doctor Who is leaving Doctor Who? Oh, and that is interesting if you consider how much of a genre shift it is. Yeah, exactly. I I thought that was a really, really interesting idea. Ooh, that is... Ooh, ooh, there's lots to chew on there, isn't there? Yeah. It's like the rules of the show being suspended, 
and it's literally introduced by us backing out of the show. That's rather good. <clears throat> this is what happens to the near deceased. They're normally unconscious. I, I think there might be some pain. Well, I'm ready when you are. Are you quite sure? Oh, get on with it. <laughs> The thing that um, you brought up even as you were watching it was that you didn't realise at first and it was sort of slowly dawning on you that sort of everything you knew about the Time Lords was being invented here. You know, when they mentioned the Eye of Harmony or whatever, and you're like, Every, everybody knows about that. Why are they making a big plot point of it that's established? Well, this is where it's established. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, the reason I reached out to you while I was watching is because I wanted to understand that. I wanted to sort of think, well, should, should any of this be resonant to me because of an episode I haven't seen? And the answer is just no. You're not meant to watch this with any context. Which is really interesting, right? Because, like, who was watching Doctor Who at this time? It, was it was it fairly big? Everyone. Everyone, right. And it's not like they stopped watching after this episode, right? So there's sometimes this idea that, like, the casual viewer doesn't like it when you just drop random bits of invented canon around sort of priming them beforehand. But that's clearly not really true in the way people imagine it to be true. Yeah, this episode in part was that Hinchcliffe and Holmes were sort of like, oh, we're on series three and we have this huge audience we we can take a big risk now. Right, and I think it's interesting to reflect. The biggest lore update I've lived through in my Doctor Who lifetime, as it were, has been the Timeless Children. don't think there's been anything comparable. Oh, the Time War, I thought you were going to say. So, remember, I didn't live through that. The Time War has always been part of Doctor Who canon for me. Oh, right, yes. Sorry, yes, of course. For me, that's just, sure, yeah, obviously there's a Time War. So I suppose it's a bit like um, if somebody who's watching the show now been watching it for maybe five years, six years, so they're coming in sort of the end of the Matt Smith era. If they went back and watched Dalek, it wouldn't hit the same way because they're like, all right, we know that all the Doctor's people were got. We know about the Time War. That's, you know, like that's every, like, that's just established stuff. Whereas watching Dalek for the first time when the Doctor mentions for the first time that the Time Lords are all gone. Right, and I think that probably even hit differently for you than it did for me, because of course when I was that, I, you know, I just didn't really know where it'd be left. I didn't know what the state of canon was. You know, I had no context for these things. But yeah, I think even less now, right? These things are just established parts of, and we know where these arcs go. And you watch Dalek originally, you know, it doesn't tell you very much. It tells you that the Time Lords and the Daleks have gone, and he's the last Time Lord, and that's the last Dalek, and everyone else burned, and that's it. And it was a big revelation with a lot of unanswered questions, whereas now all of those questions have been answered in great detail. So the thing is that when I watched The Timeless Children, actually, it felt quite jarring. You know, it was a bit like, oh, God, this completely changed the show. And actually, one of the things that this, this relative digression's journey through time and space has taught me is actually the show has changed itself on a whim multiple times. And I think that's good and healthy. When we did the Terror of the Autons podcast, and I talked about how important Robert Holmes was as a writer. Robert Holmes wrote this story... Robert Holmes also wrote The Brain of Morbius. Ha! Huh. 
Which, of course, is the ultimate unanswered question that was finally answered in The Timeless Children. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not, not just the Morbius Doctors, but also the mythos as Morbius himself as a ex-Time Lord president turned war criminal and the introduction of the Sisterhood of Khan. Robert Holmes couldn't help himself. Every time he wrote a story, he was just like, and I'm going to add another chapter to the mythology. Yeah, 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 yeah. As, as well as Terror of the Autons, he also wrote Spearhead from Space. So he he was also the one that ushered in the Doctor Exiled to Earth era. Wow. Obviously, that wasn't his idea, yeah, sure, but, but he, he yeah, kicked yeah, it off. Yeah. And he introduced Sarah Jane Smith and the Sontarans. And and he started the Key to Time era. Is this the era of the show, the Robert Holmes era, when most stuff is being newly added to canon as opposed to being riffed on? JNT didn't invent much, right? Yeah, this this is see, part of the reason people love the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era is that it's an era of unprecedented invention and novel ideas. Very little returning stuff, very little sequels. It's all just like every episode, new stuff, new, 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 new stuff. JNT, in contrast, was very nostalgic. Right. So jumping forward to the new show, I think there have been periods of time, even in the relatively short amount of time it's been running, right? when it has felt more inventive and at times it's felt more reflective. The relatively small amount of time being 16 years, you know. That's longer than most whole TV shows run for. Okay, sure, fine, whatever. I was thinking of 10 series, right? Which I guess it was also quite long. Fine, whatever. <laughs> um, it's up to series 13, Renner. Is it? Series 10 was Capaldi's last season. Okay, fine. I just don't know what time it is. And we're on season what of the old show here? Season 14? Right, okay. So we're really in the... Yeah, okay, fine. It's direct comparisons are very opposite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think the show has moved faster. I feel like out of the three showrunners the new show has had, who do you think has been the most confident in adding new stuff? Well, Russell T. Davis, almost, like, it would almost be impossible not to, would it? Just because he... I suppose so, because of the time war and all of that. Like, he had to re-establish everything, everything yeah, yeah. which is invariably, there was no way he was going to bring it back as it was when it left, because that, I mean, he couldn't. No, indeed. But there were times during Russell T. Davies' era when, you know, I think it was still during his era that, oh, it's the Daleks again for a season finale, it became a running joke, right? True. On the other hand, that was the joke, and actually, that was the joke after only two seasons yeah because they don't come back in the season three finale uh, yeah so that's true but the point is i i think moffat actually was quite an inventive writer moffat's uh sort of finales and plot arcs were definitely more about his ideas than the show's ideas yeah so like river song the the, the silence, silence the, the the i don't know i don't know what you call it but the, the whole twist of the plot which sort of ends and begins with um Matt Smith's regeneration story. I guess the the ex the exception to that is six B, which is all about the name of the Doctor. But I mean, I don't think that the series arc of the name of the Doctor would have been that if it hadn't been the anniversary year itself. Yeah, indeed. Um, and Chibnall, Ch Chibnall actually has not recurred that much stuff. Well, I mean, nothing in Jodie's first season. Exactly, and even even in the second series, not loads, right? And it's but it's interesting because because the show is certainly not at the peak of its popularity. No, but it's quite well known now. I think that whilst it was critically and in fandom well received, Moffat's Moffat's Capaldi run did not 
overall do very well because it was considered too un- inaccessible to a non-fan. Uh, yeah. Now, that's... the interesting thing here is that I think the Deadly Assassin isn't that... Like, you're saying they weren't worried to drop in all of this big mythos stuff despite having a huge audience. But the point is that the big mythos stuff here doesn't make it inaccessible because you don't need any pre-existing knowledge because there is no pre-existing knowledge. It's why I like the plot that starts with Unity June and carries forward because it's not saying, oh, do you remember all that stuff about the Doctor's backstory? It's actually saying, here's some stuff you didn't know and nobody knew about the Doctor's backstory. So the thing is, even comparing something like the Time War to the Deadly Assassin, there really isn't a way that, say, Russell T. Davis or Moffat or Chibnall could exceed what Holmes did because inextricably they're dependent on it. They could do what Holmes did, but necessarily that would be jettisoning the Holmes mythos to write something new. And I think the closest that anyone's done with that is the sort of the Chibnall stuff, right? Because he's explicitly saying there's actually more to the Time Lord history and more to the Doctor's history than you and you are understood. Even there, though, Chibnall's radical Time Lord mythology is pushing back deeper and further into the past, and Russell T. Davis was sort of extrapolating into the future you know this is where they were heading towards they were heading towards the time war this is where they were going to end up at and Chibnall's going back into their past into like this is what preceded it but kind of the eternal present of Gallifrey that they're contextualizing that stuff around is always the Robert Holmes Gallifrey and of course how does Chibnall tell the doctor about the history of the time lords in the matrix yes Although, we're told that the Matrix is a repository of knowledge here, but that isn't how it's actually used. What instead it's used for is bloody Crocodile Dundee. It's it's a non-standard UI. Yeah. <laughs> if you punch the crocodile enough, it just spits out tax records. <laughs> it's like Microsoft Bob. Yeah. That's a deep cut. <laughs> so... Usually, when we talk about this stuff, we have these contrasting viewpoints of enfranchised fan and sort of newcomer to classic Who. But in this case, we don't really have the opposite viewpoint because we are in the same boat that the only way to come to the Deadly Assassin without all of this stuff being just what Doctor Who is, is almost to see it fresh either on broadcast or i suppose theoretically somebody could watch all of doctor who in order unspoiled but i i don't think that happens very often <laughs> i don't think that i don't think that person exists or if they exist it's very rare so so we we are slightly speculating here but i do have a good quote from somebody who did watch it growing up mm-hmm. with the uh, tremendous name sutex bumhand and they say One of the great things about being a Doctor Who fan growing up on Target novelizations in the 80s is that I never had any notions about continuity or anything like that. I just read whatever book came along next, and the books um, weren't released in story order. I just read whatever book came along next, and if it felt like it contradicted something that had gone before or came later, then that was just a sign that there was another story out there that you'd probably get to sooner or later. Because of the order I read them in, as far as I was concerned, the Time Lords had always been this bunch of very powerful but very stuffy old people, and Doctor Who was a rock and roll rebel who could be president if he wanted to, but was too cool for all that. 
So that's a more contemporary fan, but they still get the same impact because these things weren't being repeated. And so a lot of fans knew the story in dribs and drabs anyway. And instead of DVDs and videos, you had the target novelizations, which bounced around and often reinterpreted the shows. So by and large, the experience then was still not, oh, this is something brand new and a huge upheaval, but still to them felt like, oh, this is just clearly referring to a part of the mythology that I wasn't previously aware of. Right. It's almost like all this mythology already existed and Holmes came up with a story utilising it rather than Holmes coming up with a mythology to facilitate a story. Well, well, that's actually the case because Doctor Who is actually adapted from the Red Book of Westermarch. Uh, it was originally written in Westrong and uh, actually he's retelling stories from the... Oh, hang on, I'm, I'm getting very confused. Uh, I think uh, you've got the wrong book. It's actually the Book of the Old Time and Robert Holmes merely produced the modern transgram. Right, I see, I see, yes. So he drops this stuff in very confidently and also not with audience winking, this is a big revelation thing in the way he brings up the mythology and that helps f- make it feel pre-existing. Yeah, I, and I would like more of that. You know, I like. I, well, because Moffat did the very opposite. You know, Every time Moffat added something to the mythos, he had to make the fact that he was dropping it in itself be an event, which in turn undermines its credibility. Indeed. And actually, I think you're right when you're saying this before, because Russell T. Davis often didn't do that. No. In fact, Russell T. Davis does an interesting thing where the mythos he's inventing is not introduced as a shock reveal. What he does is the shock reveal that the mythos he's inventing has been contradicted. So it's not that all the Daleks are gone that is a massive reveal. It's It's that all the Daleks aren't gone is a massive reveal. But he's the one that got rid of them in the very same season anyway. Yeah, it's a perfect example, right? Where he sort of goes, a Dalek? But the Daleks are all gone. And you're like, but I thought the Daleks were all gone. It's it's quite a clever way of doing it. It is. It's it's really nice because you never have a period where the Daleks are actually gone. Right. Yeah, exactly. Then he gets to have his cake and eat it by just doing what he did in Dalek again, but this time with a whole load of them. Right, and I think in some ways why it became a joke is that because basically he, the Doctor kept like wiping out the last Dalek and then it was like, oh no. They get wiped out every time and then they come back and then they get wiped out and they come back. I think now we've got the same issue with Gallifrey getting found and then lost down the back of the sofa every week. Yeah, I have to say that was a wearisome thing for me about the Thomas Children, the fact that Gallifrey had been destroyed again. I still am suspicious that actually that was done because he wants to make an earlier part of Gallifrey the plot. I think if we end up looking at an era of Gallifrey, which is sort of after the Doctor left the employ of the, what they called... The Division. The Division, who are clearly the Celestial Intelligence Agency they probably had. Right, except Chibnall was like, I'm not doing it, I'm not calling him the CIA. because... Which, okay, of all the things in The Deadly Assassin, that may be the worst of Robert Holmes' many introductions. It's just silly. It is a funny joke, except that... They're going to deal with the joke. I guess Holmes didn't realise that a joke he was going to make in one line would go on to become a huge part of the show's whole canon. Right, because he didn't understand at that stage that that's just how Doctor Who works. Yes. Um, I think it's really interesting, because what that could let the Doctor do is explore some of that foundation of Gallifrey stuff. I've always thought it would be fun to do a kind of life on Mars, but it's the Doctor being sent back to like the time of Rassilon founding Gallifrey. <laughs> Sorry, I'm now imagining like Gene Hunt, but it's Rassilon. 
That that would work kind of quite well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would be really quite good. <laughs> I always think there's more time for some rattle on action. And do we know the canonical fate of Tectaeun? No. I tend to think that uh, Rassilon probably offed her because he, she knew too much. Obviously, like, a lot of people theorise that she is the other, and Rassilon's going to kill the other when he takes power in the new adventures, and she foresees this, so she jumps into the looms so that her knowledge won't be lost. Right, I see. Are looms canon is the, is the interesting question. Um, I think on the subject of mythos stuff, we've, we've talked about looms before as the ultimate obscure thing. Were they presented as a revelation? So like when you read Lungbarrow, is this stuff presented as like... Yeah, I mean Lungbarrow is very, very determinedly like killing all of the sacred cows, flipping every yeah, yeah. table. Right. right. I said when we talked about Battlefield that the Virgin New Adventures, I was close to the mythology, like the books of myth of Doctor Who, the, the Gnostic Gospels of Doctor Who. Yeah, it's funny actually how we've we've drifted off the Deadly Assassin here, but I think our discussion is fundamentally rooted in it. Yeah, there wasn't enough to the Time Lords before Deadly Assassin to do this. Well, as you stuff. said, there wasn't a myth before the Time Lords. Well, there was. There were dribs and drabs and bits here and there. The Three Doctors is a Pertwee story, so Omega was already established. Well, sure, but I suppose what I'm saying is that I have I haven't seen the Omega story. But my impression is you don't come away from that going, what are the other mysteries of the Time Lords we don't know? In quite the same way as I think you do after the Deadly Assassin. Yeah, um, you do get quite a lot of it in The Three Doctors. Like, it sets up this whole idea that maybe what the Doctor and what Time Lords in general know about their own past isn't quite true. Mm-hmm. Which, when we get to the, the Deadly Assassin, you have Barusa literally editing the past of the Time Lords. So that's actually a really interesting notion because it sort of suggests the idea that a Time Lord is kind of a myth that they tell to themselves. That's sort of the interesting thing about this this notion of how the Time Lords perpetuate themselves, not, not in a physical living forever sense, but also like how the Time Lord society perpetuate itself, which you see even in the themes of the story where basically the, their, their, their succession thing is the president, the outgoing president picks the next one. It is constantly almost self-editing, need to have the legend of the Time Lords and these ceremonies and all of these things because it's a bit like Cambridge University and many things about Cambridge are like just silly. And often those silly traditions exist because it wants to perpetuate the myth of itself because otherwise people might realise that it's just a university. Yeah, yeah. And but that's not direct, just directed outwards. It's directed inwards like this. It's not quite the same thing, though, because actually what we discover here is that the myth is rooted in fact. Actually, the sash and the great key aren't ceremonial. They've got a very specific function. We've just forgotten it. That isn't like a thing the Time Lords have consciously contrived to do. Indeed, but of course it might be the case that somewhere far back somebody did consciously contrive. If you think about it, there is an interesting implication here, which is that Time Lords don't know where their own power comes from. Which of course, and I realise to some of this degree this is the out-of-show mythology shifting, but it means that in later stories where they do seem to have more control and awareness of their own history, that actually represents a degree of rediscovery. The events of the Deadly Assassin almost provoke a sort of renaissance. Yeah, you can sort of read it because from this point onwards, ancient Time Lord Gidget start turning up with astonishing frequency. You can sort of see that this actually opens the floodgates to them realising this stuff is around and digging it back up. Right, exactly. It's a sense of 
actually we have more of a past that we can really get into oh actually of course that's why they start wearing the collars more it's it's fashionable to like swan around pretending you've got to dress for the occasion <laughs> quite well it's I, I guess what i'm saying is it's a bit like that subculture of you know like people who, who dress in like victoriana yeah yeah wasn't there a period in like the 50s where everybody started wearing georgian clothing right right uh um i probably yes uh, <laughs> I like so providing these in universe explanations. I think even if out of universe, we understand exactly why these things happen. Well, so much of what comes after this is explaining the bits that don't really make sense in what the last person wrote. And the show is uniquely placed to this because of the sort of time nonsense and all. You can always just dig into and like, well, I'll fix this detail. Or I'll fix it. Oh, but that industry. Okay, I'll go fix this detail. What's interesting is that like a real mythology. And I think I said basically the same thing when we talked about Battlefield. There is a conceptual drift. You, like we talk about how these days all of this stuff is just what Doctor Who is. But what we remember, and we saw this as well with Genesis, the whole thing about, oh, Genesis is the story where the Doctor decides he can't kill the Daleks. Actually, no, Genesis is the story where the Doctor decides he can kill the Daleks. Indeed. There is quite a lot of conceptual drift. And when you actually go back and see the stuff being established for the first time, you go, oh, that's not quite how we've remembered it. Indeed, indeed. And uh, maybe the biggest part of this is the idea of the Doctor being important on Gallifrey, whereas actually here, people barely remember who he is. Which actually I loved as a feature. The interaction with Runcible, you know, this sort of slightly weedy Time Lord news presenter who was in class with the Doctor. He's so good. The conversation was like, didn't you, wasn't there some sort of business? I, I just adore it. I adore it much more than the Doctor being this sort of notorious figure in his home world. It's very fun. It's very like a private school reunion where the Doctor didn't go into an obvious tie-in bowler hat career like everybody else. And also, you can tell that Runcible, like, the Doctor isn't somebody he really wants to be seen with. Although his demeanor does change when the Doctor says that he likes Runcible's program. Indeed. Which is really cute. It's It's really cute. cute. I love... (laughs) Bring back Runcible. He's just got this whole, like, eager spaniel desperation to to do well. It's okay. My extensive The Doctor slash Runcible fanfiction will readdress all these questions. And ones you didn't even think to ask. But yeah, this is where the Doctor becomes notorious. And obviously, if if you get accused of assassinating the president, then run for president yourself, then expose the criminal scandal of one of the chancellors, whilst also revealing that the legendary technology of Rassilon truly exists within the heart of the planet in a cataclysm that destroys the Panopticon. Yeah, of course you become notorious after that. Runcible, my dear chap, how nice to see you. Oh, I don't believe we've... um... Oh, I, I say, weren't you expelled or something? Um, some scandal? Oh, it's all been forgotten about now, boy. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, where have you been all these years? Oh, here and there, you know, round and about. Oh. Say, so, something the matter? No, no, just a twinge in the knee. Well, if you will lead such a rackety life. The thing that doesn't quite work so well Holmes drops in the mythology really well. He doesn't quite handle the techno stuff as well, because the other thing that's introduced here that becomes a big part of canon is the Matrix. And 
because he has to exposit more about the Matrix, it's a little more, not badly done, but it's much more like traditional sci-fi exposition. Oh yeah, it feels like sci-fi technobabble. I didn't love it. It was fine. I don't know if you're aware of this, by the way. There's a fairly large segment of fandom that doesn't like what Robert Holmes did to the Time Lords. Oh, really? They feel like he made them too human and too comical and just too explained. So I I think that's a fair criticism. I'm not sure I feel it myself. So, like, there is a segment of fandom for whom Runcible is terrible as a character. He's everything the Time Lord should not be. And I, I absolutely hear that. I think I can't feel that because, as we said, I can't ever exist in a world where the Deadly Assassin isn't, like, foundational myth. Right. I almost can't conceive of a different Time Lords now. Um, I mean, I think that actually in the Russell T Davies era, when they're just this thing the Doctor speaks of, what you picture isn't the Holmesian Time Lords. What you picture there is much closer to a, what they were before. No, that is that is true. Although I think I still had the silly collars in my mind. I don't find the collars that silly, personally. Well, okay, I mean, I love the collars, but I I can't imagine the people who don't like Robert Holmes' stuff love the collars, right? Okay, yeah, no, the collars are kind of a byword for it, yeah. The collars are a good example of how the way he draws them is both gothic, but also quite modern and colourful and sci-fi. Yes, it's beautiful costume design. I think earlier I called it, like, gothic punk or something. Yeah. You know, the banks of super elaborate computers, but built into kind of a old castle-style dungeon. Which I love. More stuff based on Gormenghast. More stuff based right, on exactly. Gormenghast. Gormenghast modern. There is something of the Gormenghast about the Time Lords. Yeah, completely. I think intentionally. I think probably that was a direct real-world reference point he was drawing on. Gormenghast, if you haven't read it, is a sort of surreal gothic fantasy about this noble family who all live in a weird citadel that's very hidebound to tradition and subsequently are turned on their heads by a social climbing kitchen boy called Steerpike. And the names too are very... Yeah, they are. I I feel like you could play a game of naming characters and be like, are they a Time Lord or are they a character from Gormenghast? Right, exactly. So I think the comparisons with Gormenghast are opposite because I think in some ways Gormenghast itself is trying to do myth. Right. I'm not familiar with it enough to deeply comment, but that isn't quite the impression I got. It's more like familial legacy, these stories that run in a family, which is a different... No, that's true. Gormenghast has big feelings of dynasty, which are not yeah. present in Time Lord stories. Although you definitely could reinterpret the Time Lords that way. Yeah, I think there are things which are pseudo-dynastic about them, but they're not explicitly dynastic. But I would argue right, that yeah. Steerpike is in many ways a bit like the Master, in that he has come up through the traditions of the castle, but he seeks to wield ultimate power over it and completely subvert its traditions. So that that's the cleaving point between the dynastic and the mythological mode, tradition. That's the common thread. Yeah, and these people are almost lost in tradition. Professor Watt on the forum said that um, they're a fan of the story because of how it sets their imagination into motion about the Doctor's past, which I thought was interesting because it's, as we said, the Doctor is not important here. Yes, but there is some, there there are these interesting bits about his history. So, so what Professor Watt was saying was essentially learning about Time Lords in general 
lets them delve deeper into thinking about what we've previously been told about the Doctor. Sure. So they said that they could imagine the first Doctor wasn't only sick of what was going on, but he was scared of becoming like the characters we see in The Deadly Assassin. Yeah, no, that, I think that is absolutely true. I think there's a big theme of that, of just, oh, I don't want to be these people. And similarly, they, they say that you could imagine him, the reason he takes Susan is because he's even more afraid of, that, that she will become... Susan would be corrupted into that sort of image. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's a good point, actually. I think we don't see any female Time Lords here. Yeah. Uh, this is actually perhaps slightly a product of the fact that it's companionless. Yes, but although I'm not... It's, I'm not sure if it's any better if the only... No, it's not. I think that it's just it's part and parcel. that Part of the companion's role is to have a woman on the cast. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of what makes Gallifrey feel stuffy here is the fact that it's uh, a man's world or whatever. Yeah. But I'm not actually sure that it's in, that's an intentional thing on their part. So let's finish talking about the Master. Sure. Because this is the first appearance of the Master since Frontier in Space. And it, like, it seems ridiculous to imagine now... But it's perfectly possible that if it wasn't for this episode, the Master would only be the Delgado version of the character and an iconically Pertwee-only antagonist. Right, exactly. And that's interesting, I think, because... So it's interesting in a couple of ways. And in one way, it's just because we know that the Master's always going to be in the show and no, like, he's never going to disappear forever. And it's interesting to think about the fact that if it wasn't for the Deadly Assassin, that wouldn't necessarily be true. Right. But it's also interesting because if the only version of the character had been the Delgado version of the character, that's not the same character. No, no, absolutely not. In fact, the character that we know is indelibly informed by this story. Right, and what that says about the length the Master is willing to go to to survive. The Master, both in every individual incarnation from this point on, but also in totality, so much of that is informed by his relationship to life and death and having sort of conquered death and gone to extreme lengths to survive and the fact that he always does survive. But none of that is present in the Delgado version of the character. Right. He's actually very self-assured, right? What was his last appearance before this, in fact? How, how did that end for him? Was it, that does kind of thematically end quite well, because that's, as you say, like, he's, he's very self-assured as Delgado, he's very in command and in control, and there really isn't any sense of great desperation, or as uh, we're on Terror of the Autons, we talked about the fact that there just aren't very high stakes for him. And that's really what the Deadly Assassin does, is it establishes from now on that there's kind of always high stakes for the master right it's not just him messing around which is sort of what we saw in terror of the autons yeah this matters but he's always living under the shadow of an existential threat now right but frontier in space does in fact end with the master has <laughs> stop me if you've heard this one he's negotiated an alliance between the ogrons and the daleks and himself to involve himself in earth politics and start a war and it all goes wrong because his allies turn on him i i don't know really what he was expecting but the climax of it involves this machine that can show you your worst fears and 
it being turned back on the master and the ogrons and the master being carried away by the ogrons in terror and it is an interesting place to leave the delgado master we kind of leave the delgado master on this moment where his visage is starting to crack for the first time right and that is interesting i think but what I also find interesting about the way he appears here is like the absolute extreme to which none of Delgado's master is present. Yes, he is a almost completely aggressively different character. You could look at this and be like, this is a writer using the name the master, but who has no idea what the master is, except that this is written by Robert Holmes. He created the master. Wait, hang on. I, I, I had actually missed that. Like, I knew he knew it, but I, I, so I, I had lost the fact that he was the guy who wrote the master in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Robert Holmes knows exactly what the master is like up to this point. And the fact that this master bears no resemblance is wholly intentional. Which is... Like, Holmes is specifically yeah. redefining things here. He's almost like retconning all of the canonical elements he's playing with in in a deliberately radical way. Right. The only thing that we're missing on the master is the Jeffrey Beavers incarnation. But he is essentially playing this same figure, the Peter Pratt figure. Right, yeah. The only nuance that I think you get there that builds on this is that because he's still trapped in the ruined body, but he's no longer actively dying he does start to have little delgado aspects creep back in in the sense that he can be a bit more gloating and chuckle to himself and then once he slips into tremas's body and he becomes the ainley master then lots of delgado bubble back up uh, and the ainley master is probably the closest he gets in the classic series possibly the closest ever to the delgado master yeah, I mean, there aren't that many different incarnations of the Master. No, that's true, but... I think Missy is perhaps even closer across the whole of the Master's life. Uh, it would say, like, which one goes back to the roots the most, I think it's Missy. Missy. That's quite interesting. Even though Missy is much zanier than Delgado. Yes, that is Michelle Gomez being Michelle Gomez to a large degree. Though. Ainley is interesting because Ainley is having fun again, and it's a game again, a bit like it was for Delgado. But again, the stakes can't be escaped now. So whilst Ainley is essentially a master who is just doing things for the fun of it, things go wrong in ways that are much worse for him, and he still has problems that are real problems to face. Yeah. He's also the most comical master in the sense that things blow up in his face a lot, which is in contrast to Delgado. That's kind of the impression of him I've got. I don't have much exposure to him, of course, but even in The Five Doctors. So now that we've seen all of the Masters, you can compare them in the same way you compare Doctors. Yes. And the the relationship between Ainley and Delgado, Delgado is very sophisticated and very in control. And because Roger Delgado is, is a superb performer, he never slips into pomposity or self-parody but that kind of figure, it would be very easy for him to be a joke. Right, but he's not. And the Ainley Master is kind of the Delgado Master if he couldn't sell his sophistication. Right, yes. And that's interesting because it's the same person who's trying to be what he wants, but he can't quite muster it up. Yeah, yeah. Another interesting one to look back on now, going way, way back in our watching, is Eric Roberts. 
Right, yes, I had to think for a second. If you characterise Ainley as a master trying to be what he was, but unable to, Eric Roberts is almost like a master who's not trying to be what he was, he's got too far away from what he was to to remember it. (laughs) Right, 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 yeah. Like, he's not trying to be Delgado because he doesn't remember what Delgado is anymore. He's just trying to be the traits. So he's just trying to be cool. He's just trying to be suave. Which is in contrast with the Doctor who accepts, or has now accepted that they will change every incarnation. Yes. The Master wants to, well, what is the line? Uh, Neither flux nor wither nor change its form. That's what the Master wants. The Master wants... Essentially, in a way that's actually very time odd, to basically be a constant. Despite the fact he's rejected them, yes. And actually, it's interesting, of course, because who is the Doctor in modern times who has a most exemplified that? David Tennant. It is David Tennant's Doctor. Who, uh, a Doctor who is called the Time Lord Victorious. And in fact, Tennant's last story is about him coming into conflict with the actual Time Lord. His last line is, I don't, don't want, want to, to go. go. Exactly. And also in the end of time, he says, sometimes I think a time odd lives too long. Right, exactly. It's interesting that Russell T. Davis debated whether it should be the Daleks or the Master in that story, because in retrospect, of course, it had to be the Master in that story. Yeah, yeah, the Master is exactly fulfilling the thematic beat. And in fact, that's the story where the Sim Master works for me, because within the theme of that story, the Sim Master, he's not doing the Mr. Saxon thing. What he's doing is a... Peter Pratt deadly assassin thing. Right, yeah, yeah, he's... And once again, he's come back to life not by regeneration, but by this weird ritual at the prison, which has been interrupted by Lucy. So once again, there's this question of what form of life or half-life is this? I'm not sure what it says, actually, because I don't think this is true of the, the new series where Missy and Sasha Darren's master almost feel like they are Damon's master is mad, but he doesn't feel like all over the place falling apart trying to survive in the way that the Sims master did at the end, for instance. So Missy, I think, part of the reason that she feels more like Delgado than other masters is because of the sense that she's not trying to be anyone. She just is that person. You know, she has the assurance of personality of Delgado She's not trying to affect anything. She just is that person. And, I mean, we don't know the origin explicitly of the Darwin Master. Given that Missy died, it's possible that the Darwin Master has a new set of regenerations. And that completely changes the game. You know, a weird thing I thought when I watched The Time of Children is that it puts the Master and the Doctor in different places because the Master really is, quote-unquote, a Time Lord, and the Doctor isn't, suddenly. Yes. Although what what infuriates the Master is that they're more similar than he ever knew. Because a part of him literally is the Doctor. And the thing he's been wanting, the thing he needs, life, eternal life, regeneration... Right, exactly. ...is inherently in the Master. And the Master has eternal life, or had eternal life without even trying. The Doctor, but yeah. just has it. And, and and the master has worked so hard to survive. Oh, yes. But also there is a horrible irony there because part of what drives him so mad is that everything he's cared about and strived for suddenly turns out to be 
not that he was trying to keep being the master, but that he was trying, trying to be to the, doctor. the doctor. That's the worst thing of all. Well, and, and we know from Sim, he already hates the Time Lords for making him what he is. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. the untempered schism and all of that. And also the, the White Point star, the Rassilon puts the drums in his head as the signals so that he can yeah, locate yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the other side of the Time Lord. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and that, again, means he has no agency over who he was. It means, yeah, for exactly. the Master, that his degeneration into madness and failure was actually always baked in. Exactly. The Master is so angry because you you can kind of see every post-Elgado Master as someone trying really hard to have the control over their nature, to be the person who defines themselves. And in fact, he discovers that he is the person with the least say in who he is. He's a brilliant character. And also, when you put it like that, no wonder he's furious. So if you think about what I said about the, um, or rather what our Kinspace said about the opening credits and this idea of backing out of the show and the existing rules not applying anymore, that's the sensibility that Holmes, to a lesser extent, is bringing to everything. And it's what he's bringing to Gallifrey. It's what he's bringing to the master. Yep. He's sort of going, well, whatever you think the rules are, they don't apply. And I think that well, with the Master and with Gallifrey, it's working in two different ways. But I think in both cases, there is a very specific reason he's doing that. Mm-hmm. With the Master, he's conveying this extremity of this moment for the Master. Like, the story works in and of itself, but it does hit much harder when you have the contrast with Delgado. The Master is back, but he is so changed right. yeah, that yeah, inherently yeah. tells you something about like this whole show, everything just feels portentous and important. And I think that that is something you have to just really well. The way it draws on a kind of mythic sensibility, that's really interesting. And with Gallifrey, he is cobbling together appearances that have popped up here and there and things we've been told and little glimpses. And he is about to author a new and coherent image of Gallifrey. And essentially, he needs to wipe the stage clean first to make it coherent he first has to kill a few sacred cows, although at this point they weren't. It reminds me a little of Russell T. Davis, actually. Yes, Who, of course, exactly. does literally this. Literally just goes, no, you know what? Let's kill the biggest sacred cow of all and just say, yeah, that's not there anymore. And actually then work with that. The, the that. way to make it work coherently and cohesively, or one way of doing it, is to just give yourself a blank slate. Just say, no, here are the rules. These are the rules. This is the thing. Right. Um, anyway, I like it. I like what Robert Holmes did. Yeah, I, I like it, actually. I think that you can take it too far, and maybe the classic series just did it a bit too many times, but I, I'm always up for a bit of subversion, a bit of undercutting the pomp. Yeah, and that's what I like here. On the other hand, I'm also very up for Andrew Cartmel re-mysteriorising arising it. Indeed, but I think it's, it's, it's all about the dialectic. Yeah, exactly. It's like 
pouring the bio data of past time wars into a room to create a new one. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. There's an important question that I need to ask you. Okay. Which is, is this history or mystery? So, at first, it seems like the answer should be that it's a mystery, the category that we created for, well, that we created for Genesis, but that I created when talking about Battlefield. But actually, it's not. It's set in the present day. The Doctor isn't in history, real or counterfactual. This is just um, quite a straightforward case of a mystery. Uh, I agree. I mean, I mean, it literally is a mystery. If the Doctor had gone back to the binding of the Eye of Harmony or something, that would be very different. But the Doctor isn't in the mythology. Things are in their standard order. So I, I I don't quite get the sense how much you like this. Because I'm lukewarm on bits on it, and I don't know if maybe I've tempered your enthusiasm. No, I think episode three tempered my enthusiasm. Like, very squarely. I thought, this is a banger. At the end of episode two, and after episode three, I was like, <laughs> this is not <laughs> this is not a banger. <laughs> right. If you watch episodes one, two, and four of Deadly Assassin, and then just intersperse episode three by just having an acid trip, then this is a banger. But... <laughs> I still think that, especially in episode two, there's just a lot of Engin explaining how the Matrix works. I'm very tolerant of that. I I like it. Obviously, I wouldn't be a Doctor Who fan if I wasn't tolerant of that stuff. Indeed. I I like the mystery aspect. I also, I actually like the reveal that it's Chancellor Goth, even though that happens in... Oh yeah, that's great. And and I like the reaching for something new and exciting, even though it doesn't quite work. Yeah. Episode three is bold and just... Yeah, it just doesn't work. It's 25 minutes of... (laughs) complete nonsense <laughs> it's so bad the thing i always think about is the trains because it's a miniature railway <laughs> it's something about the fact that it's a miniature railway <laughs> why if the doctor leaned away from the track it, he'd sustain an injury that you could get fixed at a hospital <laughs> the stakes feel really like Weird. And then in contrast, when it wants to up the stakes properly, it's like, and now the Doctor's just going to be drowned. drowned. So I think it's a mixed bag, but I do like the Robert Holmes Gallifrey stuff. That's the stuff that excites me, and I don't have... I, I'm not down on that. You know, I think, I think I said before that in some ways this story might be better with a companion. And I think if you were wanted to really straighten it out, that is sort of true. I, I think it would be as well. I can see where the companion fits into this, and I do think it works better. Yeah, so I, I agree. But I I'm, I'm, I feel like I hold two contradictory positions here. I agree with you, but actually I like the atmosphere that's created by the fact that the Doctor on his own, because he's, he's not having to explain things to someone else. He's always the one on the back foot. I, I'm really glad they did the experiment, and it, I don't think you could have found a better time to do it than with Tom in this gothic phase. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it does have a tingle of mystery and an oddly heightened threat and importance. Right, because it's like it's not just another visit, it's... Yeah, it's something special. And in fact, when you think about the specials, they're frequently between companions. Yeah, actually, the Deadly Assassin is closer in its structure in some ways to a special. Right. I mean, if you were doing it nowadays, Sarah Jane would leave in a series finale, then you'd have the Deadly Assassin, then Leela would appear in the opening of the like next season. You'd put it out on Halloween, perhaps. Oh, yeah. I'd love a proper Halloween Doctor Who episode. Um, well, I think that broadly wrap things up. I wonder if this is actually the episode we've reviewed that I'm maybe the least enthusiastic about. 
Is is that your new controversial position? The, the Deadly Assassin is worse than... No, I'm not saying it's the weakest one. I'm saying it's the one I'm least enthusiastic about. Right, I think Time right. Lash is worse, but I get quite enthusiastic about talking about Time Lash. Right, right, right. I get what you mean. Yeah. Anyway, next time, we're returning quite quickly to the Davison era, but so far we have discussed what might be widely, perhaps unfairly, regarded as throwaway or forgettable stories. And we're carrying on that pattern because we're doing Earthshock and nothing important happens in Earthshock. No, I don't think anything happens in Earthshock. Yeah. Don't know why we're doing it, really. Well, we've got to fill the time. Yeah. You said you like Adric, didn't you? Yeah, I do like Adric. Yeah. Well, that brings the Master to an end for the time being. At some point, we will do the Keeper of Traken, but that may not be for a while yet. But counting Jeffrey Beavers and Peter Pratt as the same incarnation, you have now seen... Every master. Do you have a favourite? I think it's Telgado. I thought it might be. I thought it might be. So I like them all, but if I was going to rank them, I would say Delgado top, then Missy, then Sasha Dowan. I, I, I absolutely love his interpretation. Yeah. Um. Probably then... This is quite surprising now that I think about it. So I do like the Master of the Deadly Assassin, so I think I'd put him next. And... Then I think I might put Anthony Amy and then John Sim last. And that feels deeply controversial. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I, I've forgotten, actually. Uh, there's Eric Wass's face from a yeah. TV movie. Um, okay. Uh, ooh, yeah. I'll, I see his last three. I can't quite decide. I think I'd probably put him at the bottom. It just because he doesn't have enough space to breathe. I mean, I could put John Sim above Anthony Ailey and maybe shuffle that round a bit, but. The, the thing with John Sim for me is that I love him in the end of time and world of nothing time. I just don't like the Mr. Saxon stuff. I don't mind the Mr. Saxon stuff, and of course it's the thing that made him iconic. Yeah. Um. I, I think part of it is, I think it's a really interesting character that he plays. But actually, now that I've seen all the different interpretations of the Master, I don't actually feel it's a really good Master. But I think that he is very mastery in his subsequent appearances, but not in his original yeah, precisely. And I think it, I think the reason that sort of surprised me is that, in some sense, he should be setting the tone for me. Right, because he's the first time you, you saw the Master on screen? Yeah, absolutely. But that isn't really the case. What about Jonathan Price? What? Who, when, when, when's he... What? He's the Curse of Fatal Death Master. Oh. With his dark leg bumps. So in my head, he's the same with Anthony Ailey. Um. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, obviously he's at the top. The interesting thing is I think he's actually parodying Delgado, but parodying Delgado is very <laughs> Ainley-like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think the thing with Ainley is I have seen clips from the survival and <laughs> they fight like animals. We well, die, die like, like animals. animals. <laughs> like, Ainley is just a cat boy in my head and that's, that's the issue. Uh, what I would say is that they are all excellent. Uh, I think it is fair to say that they are all past masters. I think you warned me you were going to make this pun, or you've made the pun before. Oh my... I'm... Your memory is so bad, I can't do callbacks. Yeah, well, didn't you end it with a previous episode that I didn't know? I made the joke about Roger Delgado being a past master, and you didn't believe that past master was a figure of speech. Yes. And then you said, like, do you want to do it again? And I said, no, the only way that joke would work is if we, like, dragged it to the Eye of Harmony and filled it with Artron energy. And 
so I specifically set up the fact that I was going to do it again on this episode and it didn't work because you just forgot. I remember us having the conversation. I just couldn't remember if it happened on the pod. Specifically set that up months ago. Oh, well. I guess the only hope for that joke now is to have it emerge from a grandfather clock and steal the body of Anthony Ainley. So when we cover the Keeper of Tracker... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. It, it'll only get better with time. I, do, I think I. I yeah. I, <laughs> just the idea of continually making that fun every time we do a master episode, and then every time I don't remember. I think now I will recall. So now, now it'll be fine. All right. I've been Renner. I've been Slick. And this has been relative. <laughs> this has been your watch beeping. It beeps every hour. I've been Renner. I've been Flick. And this has been Relative Digressions. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at Who Digressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renner Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. Master, I hardly know her. <laughs> That's not a joke, you're just saying things. <laughs>